Well, he said he used to slip in little Beatles melodies. That was his like way of rebelling in, <laughs> in church. When he had to fill some time, he would like throw in like Ticket to Ride or something like that. What a nerd. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Hello and welcome to another episode of 1001 Album Complaints. It's the show where friends, musicians, complainers, but most importantly, music fans tell the stories behind history's most influential albums as immortalized in the list of the 1001 albums you must hear before you die. We'll hit some history, some stats on the artist and album, and then do a deep dive on a handful of the tracks. Now, if you haven't heard this album in a while or have never heard it at all, don't worry. We're going to be dropping clips in along the way. Now, as musicians, we've got nothing but respect for anyone who's got the guts and dedication to put their ideas on tape, but buckle up because I'm sure we'll all have some hot takes. Now, at the end of all this, we're going to vote on whether or not you actually need to hear this album before you die. And then we'll randomly select next week's album. I want to thank you all for spending some time with us today. And to start things out, a quick and relatable story. American screenwriter and producer Barry Morrow, who co-wrote the screenplay for Rain Man, was approached in 1983 about writing the screenplay for a Karen Carpenter TV biopic. He initially turned it down, saying that he didn't know their music and he didn't like what he did know because it sounded like elevator music. When they were big, he was busy listening to Dylan and Crosby, Stills, Nash and Young. His boss asked him to reconsider giving him a good bottle of wine and three Carpenter albums and told him to go into a dark room and listen to them. Morrow emerged from the experience and said, quote, I had never heard her before. I had never stopped to listen, never heard the sadness, the sorrow, the pain in her voice. I had never heard the undertones, the layers. Well, he took the gig. My name is Adam. I've been playing music for 30 years, played professionally for over a decade, and today I'm going to be leading us through the 1970 album Close to You by The Carpenters. Now, before we get to our crew introductions in just a minute, we're going to first jump into the music with a taste of the big single from this album. It's a song called Close to You. there you have it we've got some uh we've got some flavor for the conversation that will follow so let's throw it around the room and get the introductions from our crew today by way of a tweet length review so let's first throw it to rob thanks adam and some of these descriptive words in my tweet length review already come up believe it or not but i wrote of close to you sexless elevator music with about (laughs) as much teenage rebellion as a glass of warm milk but the harmonies are great, so astute listeners of the podcast, I think you know where this is headed. <laughs> <laughs> All right. A little snarky. I like it to start. All right, let's throw it over to Marty. Hey there. I think I'm kind of going down that same road. My tweet length review is more like the Brady Bunch, less like the Beach Boys. The Carpenters Close to You has a family band vibe that would be all vanilla ice cream and missionary sex if it weren't for that (laughs) 
tinge of darkness brought by singer, drummer extraordinaire, and cooler sister, Karen. <laughs> All true things. All right, Tom. Uh, you know, this album was released within a month of Paranoid, after the gold rush, and <laughs> oh Abraxas. Even at the time, it must have sounded dated. And to a modern ear, this shit is cornier than the Iowa State Fair. But goddamn, does Karen Carpenter have an amazing voice. <laughs> <laughs> All right. And this is Adam. And my quick tweet is that this was kind of my grandparents' music while still also somehow being my parents' music and also somewhat my music, at least based on their Christmas album. But did the Carpenters' wholesomeness and innocence in an unforgiving industry somehow future-proof them? And does that really make them a crucial listen? I'm looking forward to getting into it with you guys. Adam, I like how you're just like, my whole family's been nerds for three generations. We all <laughs> like the Carpenters. Oh, yeah. I will, I will happily embrace the nerd. All right. So let's, let's go around the room again and let's get some general impressions. It, you know, I kind of see where this is leaning, but I would love to get a little bit more and, and see how your week was as you dove into this album. So let's, let's run it back through. Rob. Yeah, there was lots of pleasant material in this, and I definitely, definitely appreciate the songcraft. You mentioned that it was almost your grandparents' music because the songcraft is coming, in many cases, from that older era via songwriters like Burt Bacharach and Hal David. But at the same time, yeah, the debate I really want to have is why this is essential listening, in particular when I feel like... I've heard more definitive versions of several of these songs already from the likes of the Beatles or Dionne Warwick or Rod Stewart, dare I say. Marty, how was your week? So, you know, I think we've all seen the videos of Karen Carpenter playing a ridiculous drum solo. And that's kind of my whole like intrigue with her. I'm a drummer. I'm a big fan of drummers that can play complicated drum beats and sing at the same time, a la Phil Collins, Levon Helm, Don Henley. I'm also a Burt Bacharach and a Herp Albert fan. I like the sunny day micro orchestra pop music, but I must say it lacks tension. It's just a little too nice. Oh yeah, the, they have as much edge as a fucking bowling ball. They are <laughs> the absolute opposite of what I associate with 1970, which is rebellious music, which is this experimental kind of music. Love the songcraft, absolutely. You know, it does make me yearn for the era of professional songwriters crafting your stuff. There's lots of interesting chord choices in there. And Karen's got an incredible voice. Her control is phenomenal. It comes up in her leads, and it comes up in those backgrounds where they just stick them perfectly together. But as far as anything beyond that, it's a little hard for me to look at this and say, I would be remiss if, I, if this was missing from my mental catalog of music. I've heard the hits, certainly, and can we talk about Richard for a second? I, I kept hearing about how he was a piano prodigy. And where the fuck was that on this album? I really didn't get a whole lot of that. Um, I was wondering if that was going to come through in the arrangements. If Adam's going to tell us that he's the arranger extraordinaire for these great tunes that he didn't write. He is. So he didn't shine on a lot of the studio takes on this album, but live, the dude can play. He was pitched as a savant on the piano by his mother, and we'll, we'll get into that briefly. But he, to this day, maintains that the producer on this album, a guy named Jack Doherty, 
who is listed as the producer Richard to this day, claims that Jack just sat around and that Richard was doing all the heavy lifting on the arrangements, writing the orchestral parts, writing the bass lines, writing the drum lines with, with sheet music and all that stuff. So I'm pretty sure he is a legit beast. Uh, again, it might not come through in a lot of the actual performing of the piano and, and organ and keys on this album. I do think he is a, and was a force to be reckoned with. I will say from my research, he also seems like a dick. I was less likely to give him any credit because he just seemed like kind of an asshole. And he seemed like he hated the fact that Karen was the star. And yeah, so absolutely. There was a there was a really bizarre mix of sibling rivalry and an overbearing control freak of a mother who had basically bet and set everything on Richard becoming famous. And when the untrained younger sister comes through and turns out to be a star, I think she always held some animosity towards Karen. Well, I was just going to say that there are times in this record where their jazzy, proggy nature as musicians peeks through. And those are the most interesting moments on the recording, but they're not really in the hit songs that we're going we're gonna to touch on some of both, I think. And maybe I'm the only one, but the Carpenters and some of these hit songs have been in my head since I was a kid. However, the idea that Karen Carpenter was this drummer extraordinaire had not entered my brain until fairly recently, last couple of years. I know that's at least partly because they put her out in front as the singer. She's known as a voice. She doesn't even play drums on every track. I'm sure we're going to get into it. I'm just curious if y'all knew that from the jump as well, that she was this great musician. Yeah, I, I, I knew that. I've seen her pop up on various, you know, drumming threads for at least the last five or ten years. Um, what's weird to me about this album, though, is that they ha there's this guy, Hal Blaine, that plays drums on a lot of these songs. He's credited with, with the drums. And he's played with, like, Simon and Garfunkel and everybody, everybody. He's a legendary session drummer. But I can't tell who's who, if it's him playing or Karen is playing on each of the tracks, because they're both so good. They don't make note in the liner notes as to who played on which. They just credit Karen with drums and Hal Blaine with drums as well. I read a, I read a blurb that Hal Blaine is not only a part of the Wrecking Crew, but he's the guy that nicknamed them the Wrecking Crew. Yes, because all of the old school musicians, the old school studio musicians, the guys in ties were saying that these new guys are going to come in and just wreck things for the rest of us. And hence the, the name Wrecking nice. Crew was born. One more question. Maybe Marty can help field this one as a drummer. But there was an anecdote about how Hal Blaine, the session drummer, came in, bumped Karen off the drums, although it sounds like she was cool with it and knew that was going to happen, saying that she was not used to the studio environment and that she would play too loudly. Is that a, is that a real thing? Yeah, I think, I think there's something to be said for, for, especially for drummers that have a lot of studio experience. It can be a very, very nerve-wracking process. You have to know how to tune your drums. You have to know how drums are mic'd. Your timing has to be perfect. And I'll say like, some of those videos of her drumming, her chops are what people are like, woo, because she's doing like fast drum fills. Her timing is not necessarily super amazing. Someone like Hal Blaine is just a guy who lives in the studio. He's just comfortable with it. Well, I will say, that, you know, Rob and Adam and I had an experience recently, just a couple of weeks ago, of having a drummer come in to play with us who had never heard the songs before. And in some cases, we had recorded tracks to a click and he just came in and just knocked it out. That whole, like, I can stay on time thing matters a lot. Like, you just played me the song. We're going to go through it twice and I'm going to knock out a version of it. 
Like that's especially when you're talking time is money. The hours in the studio are, are racking up pretty fast. And I think your point is that that is a very specific skill set that even all of us who have been playing music and in recording studios for many years haven't. We're not at that level. It's it's rare. You know, it's a true professional level of playing. I'm just picturing a meme of Liam Neeson from Taken, but we need one where he's like, I have a very specific set of skills. <laughs> it's playing to a click track. <laughs> All right, so I feel like I'm probably going to be on the defense here. I'm sure you guys are not surprised with that. But my only real knowledge of the Carpenters was A, that they were siblings. B, she suffered from anorexia. C, they were super corny. And a good friend of mine in high school's mom loved them, but she also loved Barry Manilow. So I was like, oh, do I... How am I going to deal with this week? But I thought this album was a killer. I mean, out of 12 tracks, there's really only two that I don't love. Hmm. And so I really enjoyed this week. It's only, you know, it's like something like 34 or 38 minutes. And this was my vacation listen. So I took the last week, week and a half off. So that means I got to listen to this album about 30 or 40 times. And... It, it never really got old for me. Let me let me ask you a question. The two songs that you don't love, are they the two songs that are with Richard on lead vocals? No. <laughs> oh, wow. I was going to guess it was the two songs that are more well-known to be done by the Beatles. Baby, It's You. Yes, correct. And then uh, I'll Never Fall in Love Again, which is not, I don't think that was a Beatles one. No, that's the Dion, that's the Dion Warwick hit. That's where I know that tune from. Which ah, she does. Okay. She paired with Burt Bacharach and Hal David and did a whole bunch of those songs. Say a Little Prayer for Me and very successful partnership of songwriter and singer. And those, those tracks are amazing. Yeah, that's a real good album. She was also a very good friend of Karen Carpenter's as well. That's right. Yeah. yeah. So this week, I read a book called Little Girl Blue, The Life of Karen Carpenter. And the story of the Carpenters is actually pretty sad, summed up with a domineering mother who seemed to really only care for one member of the group, namely her son. And that's kind of a good segue into the history of this album. So first off, Close to You is actually their second album. And I think it's on the list because this is really where they took off. So the Carpenters were made up of a brother and sister duo in Richard and Karen Carpenter. And they came up in an era where artists would scour stacks of demos of old and new songs and look for the next hit. Think of Sinatra or maybe even Michael Jackson. We talked about with Thriller how he went through, what was it, like 80 or 100 demos and then picked out the top 20. And then they said, here's the 12 that are going to be the, the cream of the crop for this album. And so I suppose it's not that different from that style of songwriting, which is really funny, too, because Karen Carpenter was actually offered Off the Wall and Rock With You as songs to put on her solo album before Michael Jackson swooped in and hmm. picked them up. So I think they, yeah. <laughs> I don't think she would have done as great a job with no. those tracks. She would have really butchered those songs. So now the book starts off with a quote, and I wanted to bring it up because it's pretty important as to how the dynamics Tom, you talked about Richard, and there's this mother character. So the author of the book was going around interviewing all these people in Karen's life, and eventually interviewed Agnes Carpenter. And he knocked on the front door, and Agnes Carpenter barrels over the butler and shouts at the author, I didn't kill my daughter. So it's pretty complicated. I don't even know if complicated is the right word, but it's pretty rough as the story progresses. Her mother comes off terribly. And everything that I have learned about her, absolutely terribly. It was the one story where 
Karen's hospitalized for anorexia and she's at a family therapy session oh and they have God, all the family yep. members there and they're saying, hey, just like let Karen know that you love and support her. And like Richard and the dad are like, we love you. We support you. And the mom just kind of is like, you shouldn't call me by my first name. And they just never actually says I love and support you or anything like never that. Never like, actually said it. Sounds like a horrible, horrible person. Yeah. So Richard and Karen Carpenter were both baby boomers. Richard, the brother, is three and a half years older. Richard was born in 1946 and at a very young age showed real musical promise. This is again at a time when How Much Is That Doggy in the Window was the big hit on the radio. So when he was three and a half years old, Karen is born and they're living in a modest but kind of classic 1950s era working class neighborhood in New Haven, Connecticut. Father worked for a printing business and mother Agnes was OCD. I think that was her job. The neighbor said that she would come out and scrub the door locks with a toothbrush and clean the neighbor's windows because she was tired of looking at them dirty. So Karen took on a lot of Richard's interest, including music, and began to idolize him. She was always a tomboy, played a lot of sports. Meanwhile, Richard would stay inside and just play music all day. And I think some of the animosity may have started to build when, you know, playing pickup games of basketball or baseball, the younger sister, Karen, would be picked over Richard, who was three and a half years older, which I just thought was kind of funny. And, and Karen was the type who would stick up for Richard when bullies came around and stuff. So the little sister beating up people for her older brother. That shit's going to stick with you. That's the right. older brother. That, that, that shame's not going away. He, he, he does have a very punchable face. I must ask. (laughs) (laughs) So the parents bought a piano when Richard was eight years old, and he immediately took to the instrument, learning things by ear. He eventually got lessons. And again, according to the mother, he was had near savant abilities. And at 14, he knew he wanted to be a professional musician. In 1963, Agnes, the mother and Harold, the father are so sure of Richard's abilities that they pick up the entire family and move to California in order to provide Richard with better opportunities to become a musician. So they moved to Downey, California, which at the time was a sprawling middle-class suburban neighborhood, very unpretentious. They didn't move to LA or Hollywood. They moved to Downey. I don't know, Tom, you and Rob live in California. No one's ever been to Downey. No one has any reason to go to Downey, ever. That's what I assume. I'll tell you, it's not in Oregon, because that's where I live. Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, the other thing, Adam, is like, you're like, oh, yeah, you're in California. That's It's essentially like me saying, like, they moved to Atlanta. Oh, you're in Delaware. That's just as close. Right. <laughs> yeah. It's really it's a big state. But also, they were in Connecticut. New York's right fucking there. They could have yeah. been a lot easier yeah. to them. They could have moved 40 minutes away and been in New York. So they move out there. Richard immediately joins the high school music program and starts performing out at open mic nights and gets some gigs playing Sunday morning masses at the Methodist church near them, as well as weddings. And Karen would tag along and, and sing as well. Adam, I have never been less surprised than to hear that this guy grew up playing weddings playing and church, church music. <laughs> <laughs> and not cool church. We're talking Methodist you know, yeah. dancing's a sin type of church. <laughs> well, he said he used to slip in, slip in like little Beatles melodies. That was his like way of rebelling in, in church. When he had to fill some time, he would like throw in like Ticket to Ride or something like that. What a nerd. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Well, here's the thing. Okay, so I feel like a lot of people 
are ashamed to admit that they love the Carpenters, but everyone has a Carpenter album that's like hidden in the back of their closet because they don't want to admit that they actually like this stuff. I do not have one of them. I'm embracing that I fell in love with this album. It's like, no, it's like one of those. So I worked at a Goodwill for many years and looked through a lot of records. You would get this album in almost every single record donation that would come through the back of that store. (laughs) Yeah. This and like Loggins Messina. I just like, how did everyone like, just like everyone own the album. To be clear, my concerns aren't about hipness though. I can embrace cheese with the best of them. And there are parts of this I like, and I'll tell you the parts and the songs I do like. My main, and I did enjoy the week. I just want to. I just want to make sure we're all on the same page. I think everyone sure, said some sure. version oh, yeah. of that. The question yeah, is: yeah, Is it yeah. essential? Is it essential? Sure. So in 1964, Karen enters high school at 14 years old, and to avoid running track and playing sports, she joins the marching band, and eventually transitions from playing the cymbals to playing the snare. She fell in love with the snare and convinces her parents to buy her a drum set, and she started taking drum lessons. So. Richard then enrolls at Cal State Long Beach, and he forms what they call the Richard Carpenter Trio, which is him on keys, electric piano, Karen on drums, and this guy named Wes Jacobs on bass. So they wind up auditioning in front of this guy named Joe Osborne, who's a bass player from the Wrecking Crew, who was starting his own label called Magic Lamp Records. So Karen was singing at an audition and just absolutely blew these guys away. And this is kind of where it all started. So not only would that be the the spark for their music career, but also kind of a sibling rivalry because the guys from Magic Lamp Record wanted to sign Karen, not Richard. Now, Karen is only 16, so they have to go to her parents, but it did not go well with Agnes. And she was set on Richard becoming the famous musician after they moved across the entire country for him. So they agree to have Karen sign with this magic lamp records and kind of as a conciliatory move they hire richard as a songwriter just to smooth things over with agnes so like you know a a pity move to make sure that uh, richard and agnes are okay doesn't that tell you a lot about the parents and how the relationship is with the children that they're so young and they're already so kind of ahead and disciplined and they're moving around It's, it's kind of odd that they would be at all weird about their children succeeding when they're probably the main reason that their their young teenage children are already so successful. It's kind, of, it's kind of odd. I wanted to say, I don't know the whole context of the parents. I agree with what you just said, Marty. That's bad parenting 101, certainly. Right. <laughs> but can we give, let's give some credit to somebody for Karen Carpenter picking up that drum, choosing the drums. There is a gendered aspect to what instrument you choose, or at least there used to be, in school band. And it's usually written off as, well, your fingers are smaller, so you need to play the flute or whatever. But it was not common back then for a woman to take on the drum. So her parents must have supported that on some level, and that's kind of cool. Well, or she just picked it at school, and they didn't have any knowledge of it. And she's just like, yeah, I'm in band. And like, yeah, what the fuck ever? We're going to listen to Richard play over here. Or it could have been, it could have been the band leader at school. I'm just saying that somebody, a lot of times I've heard that a lot of times music teachers, even if they're meaning well, can steer women away from certain instruments and towards other instruments. And that's why there are more female flute players than there are male flute players or something. No, and that is absolutely true. And it is a... I would say an unfortunate, like you said, well-meaning, but unfortunate byproduct 
of the fact that when you are talking about instruments, there is an ergonomic factor to them. And if you, if you are, like, I should never have been a bass player. I don't have big hands. Bass players that are great, generally speaking, have these fucking toasters on the end of their fucking... Pino Palladino. He's got, like, fingers. those, like, alien yeah. fingers, you know? Like, yeah. those are the guys that are naturally inclined to be good at the bass. Just because you're not naturally inclined doesn't mean you can't become great, but you're looking at somebody and you're looking at their physique and you're like, well, it's going to be harder for you to do this. So you might want to do this because it's easier. They don't necessarily know that you're going to have the discipline and you're going to have the drive to overcome that and maybe inherent physical um, shortcoming and be able to surpass that and become a pro at it. So it's well-meaning, but it is absolutely a thing. I did want to touch on one other thing that the thing that Marty mentioned, which is the parents were so good at getting their kids to be disciplined and acquire skills, but getting your kids to acquire skills and being a good parent are two completely fucking different things. Like you listen to the story (laughs) about like Tiger Woods father. He sounds like the worst person in the world. He was taping a putter to his hands because he wouldn't do his 500 putts a day type of thing. Same thing with Venus and Serena. Yeah. Like, their dad is a beast. Made some of the best at that sport that have ever done it, but I have to imagine that strained the relationship a lot and probably wouldn't be the kind of person that's like, wait a second, my plan is getting derailed? Totally cool with it. Let's just roll with the punches, man. (laughs) Right, right, right. Derailed is even a strong word, though. It's the other kid. You moved both kids to L.A. to have a career in music, and one kid's getting the chance, and you're upset that it's not the kid you envisioned. I even read that Karen was like, didn't want to move and she didn't like hot weather. Yeah, she was pissed. <laughs> yeah. yeah, right, right. So they cut two songs with this magic lamp label, but they only printed 500 copies. And in 1967, the label folded. But things are just getting started in their world. So Richard and the trio enter a battle of the bands, the finale of which was at the Hollywood Bowl, and they won, playing an original written by Richard called Ice Tea, and we'll drop a clip of that here just for context. Now, Karen's 16, and he's 19. They're legit musicians, and they're, they're pretty accomplished for this age. Yeah, the drumming, the drumming on that track is, is in, insane. It's, it's wild for a 16-year-old. Weird tempos. Yeah, yeah right, yeah. right. All right, and so, again, in one of those weird L.A. Hollywood things, as they're walking out of the Hollywood Bowl to their car, they're approached by Neely Plum, an A&R guy at RCA Records, also the father of Eve Plum from... <laughs> The father of Jan from the Brady Bunch. No. Oh. There you go. Full circle. <laughs> I like how you just dropped Eve Plum in there like we were supposed to know who that was. You don't know. Maybe I watched more. This is all tying together now, right? Yeah. This is, I, I yeah. love the Partridge family, Brady Bunch, and the Carpenters. This is right in my wheelhouse. Well, it's funny because I was thinking it was like right out of that Saved by the Bell episode when the sack attack is playing and the A&R guy just happens to walk by and he's like, hey, it's forever. I heard you playing and I want to give you a record contract. It's like the electric prunes. Yeah, exactly. So this guy, Neely Plum, has a terrible idea. 
he hears the trio on stage and the trio's bass player played tuba for one song instead of a, a bass guitar. And this Neely Plum guy has an idea. He thinks that rock tuba is the next era in recorded music. So they record an LP with rock tuba as kind of the basis for it. And, you know, it goes nowhere. I don't even think they released it. They just realized it was garbage. So the trio falls apart. But then Richard puts together a vocal group called Spectrum. Okay, now it's 1967. Karen's in her first year at Cal State and the first documented time that she starts being concerned about her weight. So she said being on stage made her self-conscious. She wanted to lose weight. So her mother, big surprise, takes her to a doctor and she goes on a crash diet and loses 25 pounds by, you know, severely restricting her calories and just drinking a ton of water. I got to guess that's like a fifth of her weight or something like that. Something well, insane. It, it get, gets worth. But she maintains that weight for five or six years. And we are going to talk about anorexia in, in this episode, as, as you heard me talk at the top, and not commenting on people's weight, but this is just the medical scenario that Karen Carpenter found herself in and was, was ultimately her, her demise. So back to this band Spectrum. So they create a demo out of the Carpenter's house. I think Richard had a four track and they try to shop it around town, but they don't fit a dance band or a psych rock band. So they really get no action, but they start trying to gig around L.A., where they're basically a lounge act, which made it tough to get gigs at like Whiskey A Go Go. Because that, right. you know, they wanted fresh and in your face and dancing and loud and aggressive, and the Carpenters were not that. And in one of the worst bookings in music history, they were booked to open for Steppenwolf. Whoa. Nice. <laughs> Richard shows up and is like, is there drinking in this establishment? <laughs> oh, I don't know if we can do this. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I drinketh not of the devil's brew. <laughs> so that, that just cracked me up. And the author of this book, I forget who has said it, but the crowd at the Steppenwolf show were so confused. Almost like it was a hidden camera show or something. <laughs> so uh, after all these terrible bookings, they're not really going anywhere. Spectrum breaks up because Karen and Richard realize they can just do everything themselves. Karen plays the drums, Richard plays keys and can play other things, and they can just overdub vocals. So they get onto a TV show called Your All-American College Show, another talent show, and they win this talent show and get a $3,500 check. And this is probably the clip, Marty, that you've seen of Karen doing that drum solo on kind of like a, a cheesy, you know, white stage. It's kind of got a 70s flair to it, but she's just going crazy and she works over and plays like a roto-tom or something like that. Good drum terminology. Yeah. <laughs> a roto-tom or some shit. Uh, one of those. I don't know. <laughs> Somebody's, so a listener is going to have to check me because maybe roto-toms weren't invented at this point yet. But I feel like there was like a very high-pitched tom that she was playing on. So they get some interest from A&M, which at the time was a very small family-owned label, which really matched the Carpenter's sensibilities. So Herb Alpert, who was the president of A&M, heard a demo that the Carpenter duo recorded and was really impressed with Karen's voice and signs them. What is Herb Alpert, like 67 years old at this point or something when he's actually hearing He's them? old because he's a trumpet player, right? He used to, and he... Can we do, yeah, let's do just a quick aside for the audience. He's most known for Spanish Flea, which, you, which is a song you totally know. <laughs> right. And that, and that record cover, the, the record album cover with the woman covered right, in whipped right. cream. 
which is actually remarkably subversive given the music that's on there. Herb Alpert's yes. Tijuana Brass Band. Yeah. yeah. And right. he's also still alive. Is he really? Yeah. Wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's 112, <laughs> I think. Him and Quincy Jones. Right. <laughs> All right, so they use a bunch of material from the Spectrum band that had broken up, and they re-record it as the Carpenters and release their first album called Offering in 1969. It does not sell well. It cost A&M about $50,000 to make it, and they only sold 18,000 copies. Most of those were sold in California, so a bit of a flop. Wait, wait, it's called Offering? Are these guys actually severely Christian, or are we just joking about that? I can't tell. No. I, they didn't really mention them having a super religious upbringing. Hmm. I see. At least the book never mentioned them get religiously going, <laughs> religiously going to church on Sundays. Well, because the the other thing, and you keep calling them the Carpenters, but I'm sure you know, Adam, it's that the band is called, called Carpenters, Carpenters. Yes, which is ultra confusing. And I heard that Richard, you know, their name is also Carpenters. That's their last name right. is Carpenter, but he meant it. He he was trying to create some different meaning out of it, but it ultimately is just confusing. Oh, you think like so that made me think of Jesus, Jesus as well. Is the woodworking carpenter? Wow! I didn't hear that he connected it with Jesus, but more just the idea that they were building something. Oh, yeah, that's good. Again, that's good. I I hate to keep harping on this, but like Richard seems like a gigantic goddamn nerd, and I'm not trying to cast aspersions on it, but. Being in a band with your little sister in high school is powerfully uncool. Powerfully uncool. Adam, when you and I were in a band together in high school, if I was like, yo, my little sister plays a mean fucking keys, you'd be like, there's no way in hell. Well, there, you know, if she was better, if she was better than you at your instrument and you needed a drummer, of yeah, course right. you would. No, I just wouldn't <laughs> hang out with her. You kidding me? And, and by the way, I refuse to call them carpenters. I will continue. I've already said the carpenters fifteen times. I know. And I'm going to keep my entire keep life saying yeah. it. Yeah. yeah. Pro pro tip for any burgeoning bands: don't do that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Sowing confusion. All right, so that first album called Offering Flops. Notably, Richard sang lead on about half of the songs on that first album, and his vocal lead contributions continued to decrease until maybe the fourth album when it was all Karen. So after the first flop, Herb Alpert suggests that before cutting a second album, they should release some singles, and that was a great idea. So they released one in May of 1970, and then a subsequent single, coinciding with the album's release in August of 1970. And that brings us up to this album in the Carpenter's Chronology and a great spot for our favorite segment, By the Numbers. I've got quite a few here, so buckle up, boys. $300, the cost of Karen's first drum kit in 1965, which is roughly $3,000 today. Imagine your 16-year-old child coming up to you and saying, can I buy a $3,000 drum set? They must have believed in her a little bit. I think my answer would be like, no, you can't. You don't have $3,000. You cannot buy a $3,000 drum set. I can, you did, but I will not. <laughs> Perfect Tom response. All right, 250000 The album sales of their first record when it was re-released after this album took off. Oh, and they renamed it Ticket to Ride on account of a Beatles cover on the album. So if you see it in the discography on Spotify, you will not see Offering, you will see Ticket to Ride. 50000 The amount of the first royalty check they received from A&M after this record took off. And is that $500,000 in today's money? <laughs> it's a lot. All right, Tom, you talked about being a nerd. Well, being a nerd pays off. The number two, the Learjets they leased 
not bought, but they leased Learjets in 1972, 73, and 75. Carpenter 1 and Carpenter 2 were the names of the planes, and they used those to tour because they were flying all over the country. Did they ride in separate planes or? I, well, they needed that, that it was, I guess it was that big. Their entourage was around 40 people in their, in the height of their popularity. And it was a real struggle for Karen because she was one of two women on the entire touring apparatus. The only other woman was a hairdresser who she formed a pretty tight bond with. But, you know, that, that's gotta be, that's gotta be rough. I can't imagine the debauchery going on in those planes. They're just like, they're like, bust out the whole milk, baby. Yeah, like, right. No 2%. We're going crazy. Yeah, R- Richard's like, I'm going to untuck my shirt after the gig. <laughs> <laughs> oh, poor nerds. You can't. All right. 27, the age at which Karen Carpenter, by that point a multimillionaire, moved out of the parents' house and got her own house. Boo. Oof, yeah, it's a, big red, exactly. it's a big red flag. Agnes also, when they started making money, she insisted on managing their finances and basically were giving Richard and Karen like a stipend every month that they could have from the money that they were making. She was also somewhat paranoid because she took all of the money they were making and went around Downey and the surrounding areas and did the max FDIC insured deposit at each one of these banks because she didn't trust a m records listen agnes sounds like a total bitch however <laughs> later on in the story her taking control of the finances is gonna seem like it was probably a pretty good fucking idea based upon some <laughs> stuff that happens later ah <laughs> uh, yes we'll get to that as well all right four million the number of copies this album sold worldwide number one as in the number one or best rock drummer of 1975, as voted for by the readers of Playboy, a, a, a well-known music publication. <laughs> oh, <yeah. laughs> and she got into some beef with John Bonham. John Bonham came in at number 11 and was pissed. He said that Karen couldn't last 10 minutes in a Led Zeppelin set. And Karen came back and said that she was humbled and really embarrassed at being rated so highly by the readers of Playboy. I feel like if that happened today, Karen Carpenter would absolutely join Led Zeppelin on stage for a set. Oh, yeah. But with a surly John Bonham, that was not happening. <laughs> That's a good point. We did hear about Bonham's yeah, antics. He might not have gone for it. He would it, have but suplexed her through the drums. They just would have given him seven more bottles of Jack Daniels before the set, and then he wouldn't have made it on stage. <laughs> And, and that and that kind of goes with a lot of like what how she acts throughout her time alive is that she's very kind of understated, very humble, didn't really want to be the center of the spotlight, didn't feel confident. You know, it was just it was just she was not a confident person. She really had to be convinced to come out from behind the drum set, and even when she did that, she would face the drummer, face away from the audience, and she had you know other performer friends come up and say like you got to face the audience. They're giving her tips like during your your ballad, reach down into the crowd, and she was like, why would I do that? Because people will reach back and you'll make a connection, and they're like, well, try looking up at the you know the balcony. And Karen said, well, why would I do that? Because they'll look back at you and smile. Like she just didn't hmm. get it. It's almost like a lifetime of psychological abuse and neglect from your parents and loved ones is going to have lasting effects on you as a human being, you know? All right, so now this next number, I had a hard time backing this up, and it was from some French outfit that aggregated worldwide sales for 
all of the Carpenters albums, but they said it was a hundred million total albums sold worldwide of every Carpenters album from the compilations to the live albums to the studio albums. That sounds high, but I mean, they were huge in the 70s. World's got a lot of elevators out of <laughs> <laughs> Like some of those numbers though, I like I've seen I know. some I, of those. I'm not sure I believe where it. they're like yeah, this group sold 60 million albums, and their best-selling album sold 3 million copies. I'm like, yeah, what, do right, they have 40 right. albums? What the fuck are you talking about? Like, so I'm going to put an asterisk on that, and, and maybe that one was just for fun. All right, next number, 860. The number of live shows they played between 1971 and 1975. That's a lot of gigs. They were road dogs. That's three to four gigs a week, and they're in planes flying all over the country. Again, kind of led to Richard eventually getting addicted to quaaludes because he couldn't sleep. And again, Karen being stressed and not eating and this whole psychological issue and the anorexia and definitely didn't help her, her scenario. All right, the next three numbers are going to be a little sad. So 140, Karen's weight at age 17. 79. Karen's weight at its lowest in 1979. And then 108 was how much Karen Carpenter weighed when she died. So now a lot of the Carpenter's story happens after this album. So I'll try to give a quick rundown of where, where they went after the release of this album. So they keep releasing singles and albums that are crazy popular their albums are going to number one. They're selling millions. Richard and Karen, after this album, they buy a $300,000 house and the whole family moves in, which is roughly $3 million today. Again, they're staying in Downey, California. They win Best New Artist in 1971 and just keep climbing. Hey, we'll be back to the show in a second, but this is a call to action to you. Yes, you. We want you to share this podcast with a like-minded friend or to share this episode with an appropriate fan community. This is the best way to help us grow our show and continue delivering these deep dives to you every single week. And just so you know, we love feedback of all kinds. So if you're a super fan of this band or no one, be sure to share this with them so we can all learn more about our favorite thing in the world, music. So I mentioned that Karen didn't get out of the house till really late in her 20s, and Karen's life was controlled in nearly every aspect. Musically, Richard told her what to do. Her mother told her how to sing. Her mother manipulated her romantic relationships. And even when touring, again, in that 32 or 40 person entourage, she was one of only two women. I think her mom was even in the studio, I heard, during the recording of this record, bossing people around. That's right. So from about 1976 on, there were signs that she was suffering from anorexia. But back then, people didn't really know about this condition. And from what little I've read on anorexia, it's the one aspect of a person's life that they can control. So they're being controlled in every which way possible. It's the one thing that they can, they can lock down. So now Karen attempts a solo record in 1980 while Richard was recovering from a quaalude addiction. She had a blast recording it, kind of found a new lease on life, but A&M refused to release it. And it wasn't released until 1996. She's super depressed from this album going nowhere. And in search of companionship, she winds up marrying this complete piece of shit who essentially exploited her for her money. Karen's anorexia gets really bad in the 80s, and she sought help from a therapist in New York, 
But at that point, she had done substantial damage to her heart from long-term use of Epicac, which can be used by people to throw up. So she was also bulimic at this point. In addition to that, she was taking a full bottle of Dulcolax, laxative pills, per night, along with a thyroid medication to boost her metabolism. And you know, kind of the, the last kick there is what Tom had mentioned, which was, you know, they're, she's in therapy, they get the whole family there, and Agnes refuses to say out loud that she loves her. Uh, so Karen winds up dying on February 4th in 1983. So not the happiest story, but there are plenty of happy songs on this album. <laughs> yeah, so quite a lead up to us trashing yeah, this. I know. Has anyone cried on the podcast yet? <laughs> <laughs> well, look, I think you, you alluded to it, but maybe the silver lining is that I think her condition and her ultimate tragic demise shone a lot of light on this disease and brought it into the public in a way that it had not been before and got people, I'm sure various people got help as a result of her story. And, you know, society takes this much more seriously now. And I think that was true sure. even when we were growing up in the 90s. It was something you definitely heard about and were educated about. So that's at least a silver lining to her legacy, right? Very good point. Yeah. And also all of the music that <laughs> brings joy to people. Again, I loved this album and her voice is unlike anything else. So what do you say we jump into some tunes on the focus list? We are going to first dive into We've Only Just Begun, which is the first track on this album. We've only just begun to live White lace and promises A kiss for luck and we're on our It's a very well-written song. It wasn't until this week that I realized that when I heard this song in my head, I was hearing the version that Chubbs sings in Happy Gilmore when he's dead and in heaven, and they cut to him. How the hell it. do you know that? <laughs> I, I Honestly, it made me... I was like, why am I picturing this being sung by like a Barry White-style guy? And I was like, oh, it's Chubbs from Happy Gilmore. But no, listen, the song is super cheesy. This song is also amazing. I really, right, I really right. like this song, but it it's is cheesy, so but it's good. really amazing. It's a very sweet song. I like how it opens up. It's clearly about them two, how they're working together. They're just beginning. I think it just has a good vibe. It reminds me of a Mamas and Papas song. I know there is some relationship between them and the Mamas and Papas as well. And the other point I'm going to make, make about the song is that her voice is on full display in my opinion, in this song more than any of the other songs on our focus list. I think of the hits, it's the best fusion of, it's one of the hipper tunes that sounds like the rest of their songs. That We'll get into some other where they divert and get jazzier and weirder and proggier, and that stuff is inherently more hip. But in terms of the hit songs that sound like Close to You or the other Carpenter's hits, yeah, I think it's a great showcase for her voice. I think the way they arrange the horns rhythmically and otherwise is hip definitely the songcraft is there that key modulation into 
the B section, the sharing horizons oh, section yeah. is just a really tasty change. back around to the uh, to the original key of the song. Oh, and that chord chart is all like, you know, major sevens, major nine, seven sus fours. Like it's four note chords out the wazoo over everything. It's really tasty. I think the change that I'm talking about, the key modulation is the major minor swap. It's it's something like where you're in A major and you're expecting them to land on a minor chord, but instead they flip it to the major chord and then you're in a new key for a little while based on that, but they wrap it back. So yeah, very tasty craftsmanship. Can I give you some history on how this song came about? So you talk about uh, these producers and artists going through stacks of demos to find just the right song. This song was originally a TV bank jingle (laughs) that Richard saw on TV. It was penned by two songwriters. They wrote two one minute (laughs) jingles. This was one of them. He recognized the voice of the singer after seeing the commercial on television and knew it was an A&M guy. So he called up A&M and said, get me a demo, get me a reference demo of that tune. And they took it and turned it into this, which became like the wedding hit song of the entire decade. I'm pictured. We've only just begun to save. Right. right. Well, the idea for the commercial was that you come to the bank when you're starting your new life. And if they played this song, I would absolutely go to that bank. (laughs) Now, I thought that this song was a great introduction to Karen's very nuanced vocals. We talked that she's not a powerful singer. She needs a microphone, right? She's not belting out gospel tunes. She has a very mousy voice. And if you listen with headphones, you can hear the mouth noises because the gain is so high. But she controls it really well at low volumes. And so I I really... This was a great intro to her voice. Like I'm, I'm picturing myself being in 1970. I hadn't listened to that album. I put this on and I hear her voice and I get goosebumps. I, I agree. I think this is my one takeaway from listening to this is I definitely want to delve deeper into her voice. If anything, and I hope there's more material like this out there, more stuff that is just a showcase for her voice. She has a deeper than, let's say, average female voice is one part of sure. it. And the words that kept coming to me, and there's irony coming up here, is that she's got a real mom voice. I mean that in a really positive way, which is to say that it's like a warm blanket. It's very comforting and nurturing when you're listening to it. It's also a little square, as we've been talking about, but I think ultimately it's able to express a lot of emotion and not just rely on sexuality or belting or some of the other things that vocalists will rely on. There is no sexuality in her voice at all. There is sadness, though, and maybe that's just me bringing my knowledge of her story to my experience of hearing her voice, but it did sound sad to me. I feel 
I would be remiss if I did not take a shot at those backups that are in this, which are fucking cheesy as shit. And I do, I'm not a particular fan of the backups in this song. I think that they are, they're a bit much. And I don't mind, the rest of the song is also a bit much, but that was maybe a step too far for me. I feel like they could have pulled them back a little bit. And that is a theme that is going to carry through on a lot of this album. I feel like there's some unnecessary backup parts that take away from what I think should be her voice out front. Color me surprised. Tom yeah, has yeah. never said the words unnecessary backups yeah. in his yeah. life. I'm going yeah, to hard disagree on that. I think, I think her voice and her brother's voice actually blend very, very well together. And I think the harmonies on this album are one of the best to be clear, parts of it. To be clear, though, are you referring to the A section or the Sharing Horizons section? I'm talking about the Sharing Horizons part, right? I oh, think, then, yeah, I disagree. Yeah. Okay, I think that when she and her brother are harmonizing together on like a main line, I think it works really well. But when there is a pure backup part, it just feels a little bit more stilted versus her voice, which is not lockstep. Her voice has, she has a little bit of play on the rhythmic aspects of her lead delivery. She is very good at delivery. And I think that when you have those kind of more rigid backups and then this kind of very silky delivery on top of it it's the you were made for me a fish was made to swim in the ocean it's that same kind of problem of this beautiful silky lead and then super square backups i heard it in some other spots maybe but just not here okay. but we can Fair agree enough. to disagree yeah see i think this song establishes their sound and their sound to me aside from the corniness and the the elevator rock whatever you want to call it it's these vocals and they spend so much time focusing on vocal blend, vowel shaping, you know, precise attack and release. I mean, these backup harmonies are perfect in my mind. And it just shows the, the true attention to detail. And if you were to take another song, I know that they've, they've got the same style, but pick a song you haven't heard, you would know a Carpenter's vocal composition. Pick it out of a, a lineup. I'm not saying that they're not executed technically proficiently they are extremely tight in terms of their precision in terms of the way that they sit together they just feel like a little cheesy to me at times and again, yeah. it takes away from i don't think that her voice as a lead singer is cheesy i think her voice as a lead singer is extremely compelling and so it did it, it was a mismatch for me personally my one complaint the clarinet is slightly out of tune all right let's move on <laughs> <laughs> let's move on to the next song this one, uh, we're going to go a little out of order from the list, but this one is called I Kept On Loving You. And though I'm back to stay, you think I'm lying, but I changed my ways. And my one days are through, and through it all. I kept on loving you. Don't worry, baby, please don't cry. I'm going for good. I had to give Richard some love here. <laughs> Poor Richard. 
Hey Richard, well, yeah, yeah, we'll let you sing. We'll let you sing one song, but it will be the second to the last song, which is where we always put the worst song. (laughs) (laughs) I thought it was funny that you mentioned the other one started as a jingle because the first thing I wrote down about this song was big Mentos commercial energy. (laughs) Oh, (laughs) wow, totally. Yeah, extremely disposable. This song is just not. It doesn't stick with me. I had to listen to this one a couple of times before I could even recall it later. I'm like, oh, yeah, that's the one. Did anybody else notice that the fade in this song is a full 24 seconds of fade? This is a song that is like two minutes and 17 seconds long, and they start the fade 24 <laughs> seconds oh, before crazy. the song is over. I'm listening now. That's nuts. It goes on for so wow. long. I don't understand why they faded it that long. They, you know, you give me give me a nice sharp fade. It's just it, it, they're keeping going, and there's little dingles on the piano happening and stuff. But it's like a, a fucking ten percent of your song is fade. Why are you doing that? This song is so of an era with those, you know, those horn lines in there. Everything about this says 70s soft rock. Sure. So I feel like this sounds like 1964 soft rock, honestly. Like it's like, <sighs> it doesn't even sound like the 70s personally. It reminds me of like bread. When were bread around? Bread, bread was 70s. Yeah, bread was like mid 70s, right? Yeah. All right. So that, that one, not, not, not super popular amongst this group. All right. Let's, yeah. let's keep moving this thing along, homies. All right. The next one is close to you. Why do birds suddenly appear every time you are near? Just like me, they long to be close to you. Why do stars fall down from the sky? Every time you walk by, just like me, they love to be. All right, I'll go first. I don't like this song. What? I know this is what? like their most popular <laughs> song. This to me was way cornier than that first song. I mean, the, it is. you know, gumdrops or what is it, moonlight or, or star drops in your hair. I think even, even, Herb Alpert said of Bacharax writing this, like, even he thought it was corny. Even he thought that moon dust in your hairline was a bit much. It's one of these songs that's confusing to me. Because to me, the A section, the close to you section, is impeccable. Love the melody, love how it's arranged, all of it. But that B section really Ugh. takes me out of it. Yeah. And the angels came down and yeah. I don't know how much Burt Bacharach you guys have, have listened to, but his writing partner, Hal David, who I assume writes the lyrics to all his songs, is a pretty masterful lyricist. And I think it comes through in this song. And I think it's why Burt Bacharach was able to sell his songs or give his songs to so many great popular artists. But the opening line, Why Do Birds Suddenly Appear?, is very strange. (laughs) 
and I don't know what it is about it, but it, it's, it's the like a imagery. sci-fi movie. Yeah, right. it's like the, it's like it the imagery be. that I get when I just lock in and listen to the first line of the song. I'm like, oh, this is weird. Marty, you're probably also a <laughs> fucking Bernie Taupin fan, aren't you? Like, they got one good line. He must be a great songwriter. <laughs> I'm agreeing with you in so much as I like the song overall. I think it is a classic song. I've heard it too many times. It's as dorky as a Battlestar Galactica lunchbox. But <laughs> I agree with you about what you might call the verse. I guess it's the chorus, but it's the A section. It's really well written. I just wish I just get bumped out of it when I get to the sunshine, rainbows, and lollipops section, whatever that is, the pixie dust. What do you think about the what do you, what do you think about the arrangement? Well, we haven't touched on it yet. I'm kind of surprised Adam didn't jump to it, but that ending section though. Oh, I have it. My list here is that it is just so overboard. They didn't need to do what? the song. I feel stops. like I'm living in the upside down land right now. Bizarro world. I know. <laughs> what do you mean it's overboard? Are you fucking kidding me? This song should have ended at two minutes and 50 seconds. No. And instead, what? they go on. And then they do another fake-out ending at three minutes and 57 yes. seconds. A full minute and seven seconds after the song should have been over. They do a fake-out ending. And the silence is like a good three seconds, yeah. and then they come in with more. Ah. Yeah, it feels a little Frankenstein together. I will certainly agree to that. But I like that ending section a lot. I think having listened to a lot of Burt Bacharach, he's very intentional about every single note, every single arrangement. I said in the beginning of this episode, micro orchestras. He used these real small ensembles to make his music. I basically disagree with everything you all are saying. I think it's a great arrangement. <laughs> I think the lyric, I think every part of the song is good, other than I've heard it a million times, but I'm, I'm trying to not yeah, take sure, that into consideration sure. here. Listeners, I am seriously blown away that both Adam and Tom are talking about too many backing harmonies. <laughs> <laughs> Again, it really is just because of how amazing her voice is, and I like it when her voice is out front and frankly for this type of music it's too fucking cheesy for me unless it has a super compelling lead vocal going on and when that's gone it just gets super cheese ball and i don't want it i don't want to hear it anymore i only four minutes five minutes of super cheese ball if we could have heard a karen carpenter does the american songbook hits as a jazz vocalist, I'd be eating that one up. Oh, yeah. I'm not disagreeing All over there. It. All over it, yeah. <laughs> All right, let's move on to the next song on our focus list. This one is a Carpenter's original and my favorite on the entire album, Crescent Noon. Green burn to October Boy, we're really out of sync here because yeah, this is a total snooze fest for me. 
I literally couldn't keep my eyes open through this. Oh, really? (laughs) Again, listening to the nuance in her voice, she has a super low part on this album and, or on this song rather. And you can really sense the control that she has over her vibrato and when she brings it in and when she keeps it off. And this just, it, it gave me goosebumps when I heard this with, with really good headphones on because she goes so low and it's super simple. But then there's some great strings in there. And oh, so man, it's just the awesome. third chord, the third verse of this song where they have that four part harmony over the entirety of the third verse, that is absolutely masterful. They kill those parts. It is complicated. It is executed perfectly. It sounds amazing. And her, but her voice is also very prominently in there as well. She's not kind of hemmed in sure. doing her backup line, singer right. voice. Her her lead out front voice is in there as well. That is fantastic. I really, really like that. And the entire I like rewound that and listened back to it several times. And I was just like, this is impressive. This is really crazy. They definitely had a lot of like production firepower that they that they Definitely had access to for, for for this album based on I guess all their their Hollywood connections, their woke mob connections. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, I agree. All those harmonies are executed really well. I just think the song sounds like a dirge that you would sing in church and not the cool church. Oh, well, all right, all right. Did anybody else notice that when it is just her voice alone, especially towards the end of the song? There's a very egregious example of it at 309 where there is just noticeable tape hiss and fuzz it's distractingly noticeable and when she does the low vocal parts and it's just her out front you can hear tape imperfections and not in the good way it's not good and it kind of blows my mind that with all the access that they had to a great studio and all these, again, orchestral arrangements and everything like that, that they couldn't have gone back and cleaned that up or something. It was, it's pretty bad. Maybe it's because of what Adam said earlier about the mic having to be so hot and the gain turned so high up because oh, yeah. she wasn't oh, yeah. projecting. It's possible, but you'd think that they would hear that back on the master and say, well, there's a solution. We can fix that. There's got to be a way to fix that. Considering right? how, you're right, how, how much attention was paid to, the vocals and the composition of those vocals. You're right. That is, I am hearing that now. That's pretty egregious. Also, Adam, you mentioned that this was one of the songs that they wrote for the album. And I don't know if anyone looked up the co-writer, this John Bettis. Yeah, uh, he was, person. he was a, a, another lyricist who wrote a bunch of stuff right. with Richard Carpenter as well. Y- yep. Yep. And he wrote songs for Madonna. He wrote human nature by Michael Jackson. Oh, nice. Wrote Whitney Houston song. It was, I mean, there's a whole list of like songs that you might know. I was curious about that. And I looked a little closer. So just to clarify, he wrote the lyrics to human nature because the right. music was penned by some of the guys from Toto, which I think we covered on the Michael Jackson episode. And then he came in after and rewrote all the lyrics. All right, let's move this thing along. We're going to finish off our focus list with the song, Mr. Gooder.
with you For there is something I've got to say And please don't let scare you away Gooder. So th- this is this is their take on a diss track. <laughs> yes. Anti-establishment. Yes. I love that they straight up name names. That's a dude. That's a real guy. It's great. I wanted more of this band. This is cool. Mm-hmm. This is him. Yeah. It's weird. It's jazzy. It's rhythmically interesting. It's dorky done right. It trends towards Gentle Giant, and that's even before the vocal breakdown at like 220. Right. There's like a six over four part. Yeah. There's like a a, bo- a bossa nova beat, and then there's like swing at the end. It's kind of got it all. In all honesty, like I dig the fact that this is a real story about a real person, but you should change that name to something that it sounds, sounds better. better I totally agree. <laughs> yeah, it sounds less like Cooter, right. maybe. Like anything. <laughs> it's like the least euphonious name in the world. Give me something. The story behind this is that Richard, before, or maybe even during the trio, as just to make money, he was working at Disneyland at one of those traveling bands. And I think he was in like the wandering ragtime band. And his manager, the guy who would walk around and make sure everybody's doing what they need to do, was pissed off because instead of playing ragtime music, they were taking requests for like the doors and the Beatles from passersby and playing them. And this Mr. Gooder character eventually fires Richard. It was him and John Bettis. But so John Bettis is the one who was like, Mr. Gooder, I'm going to write this anti establishment <laughs> song about you, like about the job I had at Disneyland. Like, ah, buddy, come on. I'm kind of on Gooder's side on this one. I agree. I, yeah, listen, man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Guy's just doing his job trying to climb the corporate ladder. Yeah. Right. Fucking yeah. A. They're, they're not protesting the Vietnam War. Notably, <laughs> by the way, they're protesting the working conditions at Disneyland. <laughs> All right, so that brings us to the end of our focus list. And what we do now, like we do every week, is we throw it around the room here and get those crucial votes as to whether or not you need to hear this album before you die. Let's start it off with Rob this week. Well, it's going to be a no for me. Like I said, it's an enjoyable listen. And it's a tragic story, certainly. And I'm, I'm certainly not sorry I listened to it. In fact, we didn't even cover my favorite song, which is cheekily titled Another Song. It's a total jam. That's a banger at the end. Last track, right? Totally. However, I'm not convinced that it's essential. It feels a little bit like a rehash of songs that other folks have done. I hear one to maybe two super iconic songs where this is the definitive version. But to me, that's just not enough to get them over the edge. I'm interested to listen to more of Karen Carpenter's voice, certainly, but I do not think you must hear this before you die. All right, let's throw it over to Marty. So yeah, I'm, I'm going to agree with Rob on, on this one. I think there's just too many covers on this song for, for me to put it you know, in my thousand albums that everyone should hear list. I think there is one song or maybe two songs that would be on like my top 5,000 songs that you should listen to, but that's, that's for another podcast that I will be starting next week. So no, so, <laughs> so, so, yeah, yeah. so, so no, this, this album will not be on, on my list for me. All right. That's a no from Marty. We're at two no's. All right, Tom, we're throwing it over to you. I want to hear more Karen Carpenter's voice. Certainly. I don't think you need to hear this. And part of my reasoning for saying that is that I don't see a lineage. I don't see what came from this. And yeah, some of it was just too cheesy for me. I can't get behind it and say that this is, you're going to have 
a, a loss of understanding of where music was going in the 70s if you didn't hear the Carpenters. I don't think that that's true. So, sorry. I enjoyed listening to it this week. I did not at all enjoy digging into the story of the Carpenters and Karen Carpenter. It was sad as fuck, and I really got dep- – I honestly got, like, legitimately depressed hearing about that. It was really sad. But the album in and of itself, I don't think it stands alone. Sorry. All right. There you have it. That's three no's. So technically my vote does not count, but you all want to hear my vote. And I'm sure you're not surprised that it's a yes for me. I thought that this album was great. I think that even today you could go into any recording studio in the world and tell the producer engineer that you wanted vocals to sound like the Carpenters and they would know exactly what you wanted. And then they would go create 32 vocal tracks (laughs) in their doll. But I also think that Karen Carpenter's story, while sad, it's a compelling one, and I think her voice is one for the ages. So it's a yes for me. I think you should listen. But I've been outvoted, so sorry, Carpenters. It's a no. All right. I think we're now going to throw things over to Rob, who's got his hand in that mailbag. Rob, what do you got this week? Yes, thank you, Adam. But before I dip into the mailbag, I want to give y'all a special invite. We are going to do something we've never done before. November is going to be listener request month. Yes, it's Thanksgiving month, and we're going to be thanking you, the listeners, and giving back. We realize that there are many bands and many albums that we have not covered yet. The Albinator has has withheld them from us. And so I would love for everyone out there to write us an email, make a comment on Instagram, direct messages, however you want to get this information to us. You can vote multiple times, but we're thinking bands that we haven't touched on yet, records we haven't touched on yet, let us know. We're going to compile those votes over the next eight weeks, and we're going to put out those listener requests in the month of November. I'm thinking Radiohead, The Who, Steely Dan, Tom Petty, Nirvana. Oh, there's plenty. Yeah. Stevie Wonder, Jimi Hendrix. There's so many things we haven't touched on yet. If you'd love to see us, send those requests over to us, please. But I I have a legitimate question for you, Rob. Sure. Does the album have to be on the list? Ooh, good question. Curveball. You know what? I'll tell you what. No, I'm going to go ahead and say no. I agree. Since we're defying the Albinator anyway. Yeah. I feel that if the record gets enough votes, then we can bring it across the line and we can talk about it. I think that would be fair. But by the power of numbers, I'm going to need you to send a lot of requests in, listeners, and I'm going to need a lot of listeners to do this for it to make it over. So do your best, rally, start your own subreddit, discuss, and send some powerful suggestions over to 1001albumcomplaints at gmail.com. But now, let's talk about some other folks that have already written us. Dipping my hand in that old mailbag. We have listener Jesse, who himself hosts a podcast called Set Lusting Bruce, the Bruce Springsteen Fan Podcast. And I want to tell you, I've recently had a chance to go and be interviewed on this podcast. I'm the only Springsteen fan in the room, I think, at the moment. (laughs) But anyway... Heat, go check that out. Jesse writes, hey, team, listen to Born in the USA episode, the Springsteen episode we did some time back, and he wants to let us know that many hardcore Springsteen fans will agree that this album is dated and filled with too many hits and that the album created too many casual fans that would claim that as their favorite album. But Jesse's argument as a Springsteen superfan is that this album was the gateway release that got people into Springsteen and allowed them to discover his other works, and his better songs. 
So he closes out by saying, I love the podcast. I'll continue to check out everything else in your feed. And I'd love to have the other members of the podcast come join me over on my podcast anytime. Awesome. Thank you, Jesse. Thank you, Jesse. Nice. And we have one more here. Listener Aaron writes, I feel your Tori Amos episode could have used more thorough information about the context of its release. Take heed, listeners. We don't shy away from people telling us when we're wrong. Aaron's trying to give us a little context. I heard the episode shortly after Sinead O'Connor's death. And in honor of her, I think it's important to mention that O'Connor's Nothing Compares to You was released two years prior to Little Earthquakes. In addition, that was the same area as Anya, as Kate Bush, as the Indigo Girls, as Tracy Chapman. In 1990, I was a very casual, nerdy high school kid who mostly was obsessed with classic rock acts, yet even I had heard of Sinead O'Connor, Tracy Chapman, and Kate Bush. While I liked Tori Amos a lot, Little Earthquakes didn't stand out at the time as being very unique. She fits squarely into a trend of indie songwriter, singer-songwriter, women artists. It's not to take away anything from her, but I just wanted to make sure you guys had that context because you were talking about her as such a groundbreaking artist. You know, I definitely would not have put Kate Bush and Tori Amos and Sinead O'Connor all in the same basket, personally. But again, I'm not super familiar with that era of music, with female songwriters particularly. I think it's a fair point that there was already a movement up and running of female singer-songwriters, but I would also have to agree, I don't know these other artists super intimately, but I think they all have their own very distinct and unique things going on, including Tori Amos. But it's good context, as always. We appreciate hearing from you. Anything you want to add to us, we started this podcast to learn. We love to be correct and to have context added. It can be difficult to get that context with only a week's research, as we do here. So we really, really appreciate it. Please send any information you have or thoughts over to 1001albumcomplaints at gmail.com. All right, Rob, thank you. Next up, we're going to throw things over to Tom, who's got his hand on that Albinator, ready to give us our homework assignment for the upcoming week. All right. The Albinator is just getting done, a nice cry in the corner. He's going to come out now and spin that wheel and tell us what we shall be listening to. So without any further ado, drum roll, please, we will be listening to... The album is... The Kinks are the Village Green Preservation Society by Steely Dan. <laughs> no, no, it's, uh, yeah, no, it's by The Kinks. I don't know if I've actually heard this one front to back that many times, but I have seen every Wes Anderson film, so I've probably <laughs> listened to all the tracks. You know what? I have definitely listened to this album front to back a couple of times. I'm surprised that you haven't, Rob. Uh, this seems much more up your alley than up my alley, but... It was one of those ones that I felt like there was a hole in my musical knowledge yeah. for not having listened to it. So, I would agree. I would agree. I'm sure we'll get into it, and I'm excited to get into it. But I did have a kinks phase when I was younger. But the truth is, they've spanned a lot of albums and decades. So I feel familiar with a lot of their tunes, but I don't know if I've listened to a whole album. And kind of a lot of different styles, too. They're like, sort of like yeah. the Doobie Brothers. Just a lot of iterations of them. Great sure. band. Great band. This is a great album, too. Okay, I can't wait to talk about it. All right. Well, there you have it. So your homework assignment for next week is The Kinks. The album is, what is it called again? The Kinks are the Village Green Preservation Society. There you have it. Thank you, Tom. All right. That's going to do it for us here today at 1001 Album Complaints. I'm Adam. I'm Rob. I'm Marty. And I'm Tom. Boosh. 
Why do boosh suddenly appear every time? <laughs>